Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we ask you now to bless us as we look into the testimony and witness of your word. Father, these words of our Savior are precious to our hearts, and we pray, Lord, that you would now show us how to apply them to our lives for your glory and for our blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Deuteronomy chapter 6 again this morning. And we're going to be continuing to talk about the subject of loving God. After taking some time in prayer and considering how I might begin this morning, I typed into my search engine the following words, quote, I knew I loved her when, dot, 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 unquote. And in this wonderful world of uh, instant information, the screen filled with one option after another. Things like, titles like, 30 men on the moment they realized they were in love. That appeared, and I scrolled down, and there were dozens of similar websites begging for my attention, Real Men Spill, How I Knew I Was in Love with Her. Nineteen People Reveal When They Knew They Were Really in Love, and so on and so on and so on. If you're tempted to try that right now, you know, you have your phone there and you might think, well, I wonder what happens when we do this. Let me advise you not to bother. Um, I looked at several, and they proved to be among the stupidest, most inane, and useless things I think I've ever read. Oh, a few were cute, and some were sentimentally uh, moving, but the greater part hovered somewhere between being just plain silly and dreadfully foolish. Imagine imagining the relationships founded on a majority of these impressions of love was like watching one of those commercials where they strap the test dummies into the car and it careens towards a brick wall. I suppose that that some of these things led to marriage, but I doubt that many of them ever resulted in a meaningful and lasting relationship. I didn't spend much time, of course, on that search as soon as I realized it wasn't going to be fruitful. But there was one reference, not from one of those websites, but from a book that happened to pop up, actually a magazine that popped up as part of the search that intrigued me. A man was telling the story of his own marriage, and in passing, he's quoted as saying this, I knew I loved her the moment I realized she had a hold on me. I knew I loved her the moment I realized she had a hold on me. It wasn't a conniving thing on the woman's part at all. She wasn't secretly manipulating him. That's not what he was referring to nor was she really trying to control him in any way. No, on her part, she simply loved him. And he knew that. 
And it got a grip on him. And that's what he realized. Um, She simply loved him. But that grip of love produced a strong sense in him of love towards her. He knew by its very nature and its intensity, that is what he was feeling, that this feeling he had for her, that it had a hold of him. And he was in love. And, and what this was was love, as he considered it. It was something that he had in relationship to this woman that was unlike anything else he knew. And it was just this woman that had this kind of hold on him. Not because she was purposefully trying to get that kind of hold on him, but because that was the response of his heart towards her. Now, when that sort of love is answered by a similar sort of love in the other person, it's often the making, especially when the grace of God is involved, of a strong and lasting marriage bond. We realize, of course, that sin can corrupt anything, and it can certainly push this situation in a dangerous direction. For example, when a selfish person finds out that he or she has this sort of hold on someone else, it can and it has led to abuses, to be sure. But when the couple is committed to prayer and serving the Lord first in their relationship, this can prove to be the ground for a rock-solid marriage. He has a hold over me. Uh, I have a hold over him. It's not something that we impose on each other. It's something that's in the heart of one another. Now, we're here to talk about the love that we have for God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And one of the reasons that this description caught my attention was because there is a sense or an element in it which, or what this man said about the realization of his love for his wife is similar to the nature of the love for God that every believer has in Jesus Christ. He put it like this, you remember. I knew I loved her the moment I realized she had a hold on me. And it's the love of God for us that creates a love in us, that when that love is first realized, begins drawing love out of us. And we begin to discover that he has a wonderful hold on us, that we are, as Paul puts it, compelled by that love that he has for us to love him. And it meets our hearts in that way when the Spirit opens our hearts to that sort of love. The Scripture says in 1 John 4, 19, that we love him because he first loved us. When he extends to you and me the first glimpse or sense of this love manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ, While we're still sorrowing and and repenting over our sin and and crying out for mercy, when when we see the tenderness 
the abundant graciousness and the power of that love he had towards us. When we see for the first time what it means to be in the grip of his love, it's found to be irresistibly compelling. It pulls love out of our hearts. It causes us to respond in love towards him. And suddenly we find ourselves in a position where we realize he has a hold on us. And and it's a hold that comes out of our own hearts in love towards him. As Trevor Francis, the London merchant, once put it, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. Leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, love of every love the best. Tis an ocean vast of blessing, tis a haven sweet of rest. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory, for it lifts me up to thee. But all this brings us back to the question that we've been examining as to exactly how is it that this loving God desires to be loved by you? How is it that he wants you to express this hold that he has over you? A love like the one he's bestowed on you who believe needs to be, it must be, returned in a proper way, in an acceptable sort. Nothing else will do for the sincere believer. We're not satisfied to love God according to what we think his love requires of us. But we want to respond with what we know his love requires. And we find throughout scripture that it's with a fullness and a completeness that requires very serious consideration on our part. And so we've been looking at these words here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. We have here, as we said last week, a synopsis of the first table of God's law. We're drawing the lessons from here, realizing that that's what these words are. They're a synopsis of the first four commandments, and that these words are repeated and confirmed by Jesus in the New Testament as the testimony of God's will in this matter of how he is to be loved. Now, it's in here, verse 5, that we're presented with a clear statement of how God wishes to be loved by those who are his. 
And as we saw last week, God promises to give this sort of love to all who come to him in Christ Jesus. And it's in him, that is, in him by Jesus, that one is then able to comprehend the the width and and the length and the depth and the height of the love of God for us, which is a love that passes knowledge. And as God reveals that love in us, he then gives to us a reciprocal love for himself. The more of the fullness of his love and his grip on you that you comprehend or realize, the more love it pulls from the heart and the mind and your very being. The clearer the depth and wonder of your love for him becomes as you understand the character of his love for you. Now, there's a temptation as we look at these words here in, in Deuteronomy 6.5. There's a temptation to try to separate and define each of the expressions. What it means to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But I believe it's more advisable to see them as calling on you to love God with all that you are and with all the power you possess. But just summarize it that way. To love him with all that you are and all that you possess. Reverend Annesley says, the mind must think of God, the will must delight in God, in short, our whole strength must be employed to please him. Now that's the kind of love that he calls for. It's the kind of love for him that he asks for. Now that's the sum of it. But it's too easy to become, for the whole idea to become nebulous about what this means, what it means to love him with a whole heart, what it means to love him with a whole soul, what it means to love him with all our strength. It's too easy for it to become nebulous until we return to the law of God itself. And we return to it not as those trembling under its judgment, but as Christians who delight in the instruction of God's word. Not as people threatened by the law, but rather in the spirit of King David. In Psalm 119, in verses 10 through 12, David says this, With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. David is approaching the law here with an evangelical spirit. He's not looking at it as something he has to fear or or something that will condemn him. He's looking at it as an expression of God's will, a will that he wants to conform to for the glory of God and for the blessing of his own heart. John puts it this way in 1 John 5, verses 2 through 4. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that, overcome, that has overcome the world, our faith. 
One of the blessings of being redeemed, beloved, is that of being able to return to the law of God and no longer view it as an enemy, no longer view it as burdensome or as a threatening thing that we have to try to bear, but knowing that all that, all, all that burdensome character of it has been settled in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be able to come now to see it as the will of God and to be able to receive it as the will of God because we love God and we want to know what his will is for us. What does God want me to, how does God want me to think of him? As now a redeemed believer, as now somebody saved by grace, by someone who has now had had the burden of the law removed, and now I can look at the delight and the joy of the law. Luther says, For the loving of God is not less required than our conversation and the keeping of all the commandments, because the loving of God is our conversation, is our keeping of the commandments. Now, when we look to the law of God, what does it tell us about the character of this love that we are to have for God? Well, first of all, it's to be exclusive. It's the law, it's in the law, that you find that you are to love nothing more than God and nothing equal to God and nothing in the place of God. That's really what the opening commandments tell you. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments to those who love me. So when we step out of the threatening and the burdening of the law in Christ and we return to it again as Christians, We see here that God wants me to love him in an exclusive way. And that I can't love anything else before him. And I should not love anything else before him. I shouldn't put anything in this world in his place, in the place of him. And I am to give him the love which he requires. Then the law tells me that I am to love him as God, as God, as all that he is as God and because he is God. Many miss this aspect of the law because they reduce the next commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, to meaning that I shouldn't use God's name as a curse word. That that's what this verse is about. But if that's all you see here, you've missed the point. And you have not fully discovered the spirit of the matter, the spirit of the law here. 
The Lord told you through Moses that he will be sanctified or set apart as holy by all those who approach him. And this spirit of holy regard is manifested in the reverencing of his name. The reverencing of his name means more than than only using it rightly. It is in the whole respect and honor and reverence that you have for God as God. You see that in passages like Exodus 23, verses 20 through 22. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to keep you into the, uh, or to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Now listen to this next verse, or, or look at it there if you have it in the notes before you. This is verse 21. Beware of him and obey his voice and do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. Listen to this angel who's going to lead you. and Don't disobey him and don't provoke him. Why? Because my name is in him. And so you're to give him that honor that is associated with my name. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and adversary to your adversaries. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. And this is prophetically speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I will raise up a brethren among, a, 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 a prophet among you and I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And so there's supposed to be a reverence here as this prophet speaks because he's speaking in the name of the Lord. So there's to be a reverence of God that is a part of this honoring of his name, an acknowledgement of him. This setting him apart. So when I love him, I'm to love him exclusively. I'm not to put anything in his place. And I am to love God as God. It's a call here to, to reverence God in all that he is, including the fact that he's your God. That he's your God. And we can refer to a more common or familiar type to illustrate this. In any healthy marriage... A husband or wife is loved because of who he or she is as a person, to be sure. But there's also another element in that that ought to be present and not despised. And that is loved because he or she is your spouse. Not just who they are but because of this unique position they hold. I, I love her because not only do I, I think she's beautiful and not only do I think she's gifted and talented, but there is a part in which I love her because she's my spouse. Or I love him, not just because of he's handsome and he's strong or whatever, 
uh, is talented or gifted, but because he's my husband. And there's a sense here in this idea of loving God because he's God and reverencing his name and holding, it, holding that name holy because he is my God. He's not just a God. He's my God. He's the God with whom I have communion. He's the God with whom I have a, a, an intimate, personal relationship. He loves me, and I know he loves me, and I love him. But it's not just a matter of having him in that sense of love, but he's also mine, and I am his. Now, there, sadly, are many cases where a husband may be married to a woman or a woman to a husband, but in which he's no husband to her or she's no wife to him. It happens. We know it. We see it. But that element should be there in in the relationship we have with God. And then the next aspect, which comes to us again, the law, and that's all part of honoring his name. The next aspect is probably even a little harder to grasp at first. But as God lets it shine upon the heart, it's a very special aspect of the love that believers have for him. It is the loving of every other thing in and for God. The loving of every other thing in and for God. That's the way Ansley puts it, and he's quoting Martin Bucer, for those of you who are familiar with him. And I hope you're challenged by the Holy Spirit and the Word to give this some careful thought and, and, and meditation and study because it's such a beautiful and empowering part of the character of the exercise of any true love towards God. You know, we're trying to talk about how to do this practically. And this is really an important part of that, beloved. It might not jump out to you at first, but it's the spirit of the final of the first four commandments that demonstrates this. And when we think of that fourth commandment, it may not jump out to us right away. How does that reflect this special kind of love for God? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. I'll just go back for a moment. And think about this. Those six days in which you are to do all your work, those six days, beloved, are a gift to you from the God who loves you. Those six days out of every week are a gift to him. And from him, rather, I should say. And everything about them is his gift to you. 
your life, the sustenance that you enjoy during those six days, the shelter that he has put over your head, the freedom that he's given you as you live out those six days in which you labor and do all your work, the soundness of mind that you have as you put your mind and your talents and your abilities to work during those six days, all of that is a gift of his love to you, a testimony of his love to you that he's given you those things, the blessed trials that come on you, They are a gift of his love to you during those six days. There's a purpose and a design in them, and all of them are working together for your good according to his promise to you. Because you love him and he loves you. And all the blessed joys that are part of those days. You have those six days and everything in those six days that profits, everything that blesses, everything that turns to your good is a gift of his love towards you. And that's the way you're to receive them. That's the way you are to see them. This is, this is God's love towards me, these six days that I have to work, to use my mind, to use my talents, to use my abilities, to enjoy the shelter, to enjoy the life which God has given to me. It's a gift of his love to me. And as you perceive those six days that way, what's your response? <laughs> Lord, I love you for loving me like this, for giving me these things, for giving me the love of another, for giving me the food on my table. I love you, Lord, for giving me those things. You see, the whole unredeemed world doesn't see life that way. It sees life as something to exploit, something that just falls out by chance, something that just pours out and they just endure from day to day. But the believer doesn't see his or her life that way. You see your life as a gift from God. You see every blessing in it as a gift from God. And as you do that, it draws out of you naturally a love for him. Let me put it this way. It's a wonderful thing to thank God for every day. And every blessing in it. But it's a more fit thing to love him for it all. You see what I'm saying? It's a wonderful thing to thank him for it. It's something else to love him for it. And say, here are all these tokens of God's love for me. Oh, how I love him who loves me. Why? When men dig in the earth and plant seeds... Do they grow and fill your table with good, delicious, and healthy things to eat? Why? If you're not redeemed, you don't know God, you just see that as Mother Earth taking care of you. But you don't see it that way, do you, as believers? That's not happening. You, you don't live in a land of bounty like, like we live because Mother Earth is being good to you. 
You see that as the work of God. God says, I did this. I created the seed. I send seed time and harvest. I'm the one who does those things. And you as believers receive them on that ground. It's it's that way because God has made it so. And that's why when we sit down to give thanks at our meals, it's, it's, it's not just a point where we just say thank you. We, we add to that, we love you. We thank you and we love you for what you've provided for us, for what you've brought to our table, the strength that you've given us to eat it and to enjoy it. In Psalm 145, the psalmist says in verse 15, the eyes of all look expectantly to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of everything. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. And the believer looks up to him in regard to that and says, Thank you, Lord. I love you, Lord, for providing these things for me. Do you see what I'm saying? About it not just being six days of work. And the way we often look at this commandment is we say, Oh, there's six days of work. Okay, we put that aside. And then we have the Sabbath. And that's not the way the commandment is being presented to you. The commandment is being presented to you. The Lord has a wonderful gift for you. First, six days to labor and do all your work. And then, in addition, the Sabbath to keep holy. That's the Lord's day itself. What a tragic thing it is that this gift of God's love is despised by so many. How could a time of such promise from God become a hated thing in the world? And the Lord's day is full of promise. As a covenant sign back in, in, in the old covenant, the Lord said, if you turn your back or turn your foot from the Sabbath back, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and Call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not, doing, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And once again, it's a matter of receiving this holy day from the Lord, and enjoying it in him that demonstrates love to him. So in short, we can say as Annesley does, he that loves God as he is here commanded believes that all good is in God and that God is all that is good and that without God there is no good. Now obviously... We need to bore down a little deeper in order to understand what it is to love God as he commands in this passage. But this kind of sets the stage of it for us. And on the basis of that, we kind of start to think about the nature of this love to God. And the first thing we understand in that regard is that it requires a new heart. Because of that infection known as original sin and because of our own natural love of sin and our enmity towards God, the love that we're talking about is not a natural thing. That's why people look at those first four commandments and they bristle against them. 
instead of seeing them as, as, as a description of how God is to be loved, they see it as something to burden them and to hold them down and, and to keep them from enjoying life. But when the Lord gives a new heart, a new nature, that all changes. To love God as he commands requires a new heart, a new nature, and and a change in who we are on the most fundamental level. If I'm going to love God with all that there is within me, what's in me has to be changed. You may recall that we see God's promise of meeting this necessity right here in Deuteronomy in chapter 30 where he says that he will circumcise the heart of you and of your descendants to love the Lord God with all your heart. And the same thing comes through the scripture from the Psalms to the prophets. Ezekiel 36, we read in verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out, of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. And it takes this form in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So you, who, who love God this morning... You have known this transforming power in your life. And how blessed are you? How blessed are you to have had this happen to you? To have had this change in your nature, in who you are? How loved are you that God should give you that change? Loved so much by God in Christ that he wouldn't leave you moldering away in your old nature, hating him and destroying yourself, but gave you a new nature whereby you could see his love for you and feel the hold that that love has on you as his own. And isn't it true that such a love by the grace of God and his spirit gets a hold on you? Isn't that true? Beyond that, to love God as he commands here in his word requires an enlargement of your heart's capacity to love, your mind's ability to comprehend, and your being's strength for such love. And it's this necessity that stands at the heart of Paul's prayers for the Ephesians, in which he teaches us how to pray for ourselves and how to pray for one another. He says there in Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through the Spirit, through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And what a blessing it is to know that as you pray for this grace in your life, 
The God who loves you answers it with fresh revelations of the width and the length and the depth and the height of his love. How it must thrill you. How it must thrill you to find yourself as you pray to know more of the love of Christ standing on that ocean full of blessing. How it must thrill you. You know what my problem is? I don't make that prayer. So I miss that ocean. I don't pray like I should for the opening up of the picture of that love of Christ for me that will enable me to love him with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And I know when I say that, I'm not just confessing for myself. When I say that, I know that there are those who are going to step back and say, I don't know that thrill. And I have to admit, I don't know that thrill because I don't pray that prayer. I pray for all the things I want and all the things I need and all the problems I see in the world and all the people I think are suffering in the world. But I don't pray that I myself might see more fully the width and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ so that I might have hold of that by which I am held by him. That love, that deep abiding love. And I ask you to pray for me. And I'll pray for you. That the Lord will help us to understand more of the character of this love because it is a thrill to stand on, on, that, on that ocean shore, to, to wake up during those six days and say, here is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Why? Why am I going to rejoice and be glad in it? Because that's what I'm supposed to do because I'm a Christian. And I really need to try to do that as hard as I can to, to really thank God for this day. Instead of looking at it and saying, this is the day in which the love of God is being shed on me. This is a day in which God is making his love known to me through the Lord Jesus Christ. And to receive the day in that manner from his, from his hand. And lastly, it requires a consumed heart. The heart must be totally filled up with a sense of his love. The mind constantly awed by the beauty and the intensity of that love. 
and the strength willingly employed in the service of that love. Do you see how important this is to the whole testimony of how you are going to serve the Lord from day to day, whether we're talking about in the context of your home or in the world in which you live or as a part of the testimony and the witness of the church? Do you see how important this is? If I have some grasp of how much he loves me and how that love has a hold on me, then it translates into, well, how am I going to serve him? How am I going to show this love? How am I going to demonstrate it? If there's a time when the people of God get together for prayer, I'm going to be there praying. I'm going to be adding my heart, my voice to those prayers. If there's a time when the people of God are getting together to be a witness to others, I'm going to be there doing what I can. It's all, it's different for all of us because we're all a different part of the body. Some of us are the foot, some of us are the eye, some of us are the head. We're all different parts, but we're going to be there working together. And the intensity of this love we have for him is going to animate that service for him. Delighting to know and to do his will, overcoming sin, walking in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, serving him in our homes, in our church, in our community. David said, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. These things, beloved, are the gift of God to his elect. Paul speaks of the love of God being shed or poured into our hearts. And the picture is just like this. It is as if we see God with a great pitcher or jug tilted over you. And he is lovingly pouring out all of it upon you. Pouring it into you and filling you up. And even you children know this. If I take out my cup here and I take a pitcher full of water and I start pouring that in, after the cup gets full, what happens? It overflows and spills out, right? And that's the picture here, beloved. You see, you understand, here is your God pouring out his love on you. And as that love is poured out on you and it fills you up, it spills out of you. And as it spills out of you, it becomes a testimony of God's love to you and to you and to you and to those outside. What is there about this person? Why are they the way they are? They are because the love of God is poured on them and they are responding with love to him. And that love to him is going out as a testimony throughout the whole world. In 1 John chapter 4, John says in verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. 
God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. This love that we have for God is such as fills us and consumes us, responds in his love towards us, and acknowledges that this God who loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us has a hold on us. It's a hold on us. And living for him is what we must do because he has that grip on us, that loving, blessed, gracious grip. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as I bow here with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I confess for myself and I pray for all those who can pray with me in it. That I have not prayed faithfully for a clear sight of your love for me. And therefore, Lord, have not felt the strength of that compelling love to move me in love as it ought. And I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for that, for Christ's sake, as you've promised. And Lord, give us that sight of your love. Let us stand together on that shore of the ocean of your love. And let it, Lord, wash over us and under us and all around us. And may we, in Lord, may we, Lord, in kind, respond in love finding that hold that you have on us as our Redeemer. Every believer knows it. Every believer is aware of that hold. But Lord, we we want it to be more than just a feeling. We want it to be a reality in our lives and in the way we walk and live and talk before you. In our homes, Lord, in, in relationship with one another. Here as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, please... By your grace, let us know in no common way the fullness of your love for us in Christ, that we may, Lord, love you more. If there's anyone here who has not known the love of Christ, oh, Lord, we pray that you would speak to their hearts, help them to see that it is in Christ that true love is found, And Lord, help them to discover the forgiveness of sins and what it means to enter into the joy of the Lord. Be gracious, Lord. Make us a faithful testimony to the reality of that and a witness by our very living. And may you be glorified, Lord, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You would open your hymnals to hymn number 649 and stand with me as we sing, More Love to Thee, O Christ.
And now with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forever. Amen.